You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the show that's usually about why people believe weird things. We tend to focus quite a bit on the supernatural, crazy cults and strange political beliefs. And perhaps this episode is too about strange beliefs, to some degree. For when times are tough, we do sometimes like to let loose a little and cover something that's just a little bit silly. 2001 was a different time. A time of baggy jeans, wallets on chains, and a strangely heavy, angry and profoundly stupid music style that inexplicably became practically mainstream. It was the era of new metal, a subgenre now so hated and disgraced that even those of us who were fans back then are pretty much happy to pretend it all just never happened. For myself and my brother Donal, one of our key memories of this bizarre time is the book Slipknot, Behind the Sickness, Inside the Masks. It's an almost unbearably hot take on what was then a red-hot phenomenon, a view devoid of context seen from the veritable eye of the hurricane. It's an absurd, juvenile, but breathlessly genuine time capsule of an age that has yet to be enshrined in any sort of nostalgic movement. Well, we're getting the ball rolling by talking about this book now. And, in a way, it is a look at a strange belief a window into a vanished age. We loved this book as teenagers, and we're returning to it now. Slipknot perhaps can be seen as the breakout stars of the new metal era, and this book chronicles them at the height of their intensity and their bombastic ridiculousness. Get ready for dead crows in jars, shitting on stage, dicks for noses, rotting cow heads, and, tying everything together, the utter belief that this is indeed a deadly serious important youth movement. Live from lockdown, from the cabin in the woods in West Cork, and lovely Montreal, Quebec, this is Wide Atlantic Weird. This episode, What You Did Not Create, Slipknot and New Metal Nostalgia. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. So, like, the way I think about it is that the first half, the origin story is pretty amusing. And you can see they're building their own mythos and all that. And then the second half of it is only kind of amusing in the sense of... Uh, James Harding said this to me over text, that it takes you back to the kind of schoolyard, you know, legends of the band being like more extreme and more crazy than anything we'd ever seen before. Yeah. Uh, like like boomeranging from the pages of Krang into, you know, the local idiot's mind. And oh, this is the rumors. 100% Krang. I, I just, I don't know why I'd forgotten this over the years, but as soon as I got it, I picked it up. I don't know, even before I started reading it, I just got a bang off it. Like this, this is British. And this is Krang. And sure enough, the guy who wrote it was a Krang mook, wasn't he? Yeah, like well, like I said, so the second half of the book is just one big long 5K review of the album and tour. And with like extra emphasis, on, extra emphasis on, they came to the UK and like here's way more detail of what they did in the UK for, you know, two weeks than the six months prior in the States because I happen to be there from this. It says on the back of the book as well, this is a picture of Jason Arnop, 
looking Look, very lo- new metal. He looks like a young Billy Joe Armstrong to me in his face. Yeah, a bit, a bit plumper though. Yeah. Uh, I looked I looked him up and he wrote a bunch of Doctor Who uh, audiobooks. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> uh, and uh, it says here that he was the first British writer to interview the band Face to Mask. <laughs> Just such a chimpo line. It's hilarious. It's just like he offers absolutely zero criticism, context, commentary. It's just it's just one hundred percent reverent and praiseworthy from start to finish. And he, what's so funny is that he takes absolutely everything they say at face value and just like <laughs> accepts it. You know, it's just like he he obviously talked to them a lot, and f- fair enough. But he recorded a lot and just like puts in the quotes, <laughs> it's like devoid of any context like with the occasional like doesn't that show that they're badass you know it's so lame but what i mean what this is as a cultural artifact is a book written commissioned to cash in on a fad you know in the heat of the moment before it dies you know get it out there as soon as you can but what it, it it also does seem to be written by someone who genuinely was enthusiastic about it yeah, I mean, so I, I'm in two minds there. So I agree with you that it's a it's a cynical cash grab. But then he also comes across as a complete and total true believer, which he probably was. I mean, like, you couldn't edit crying in 1999-2000 without being all the way in on new metal because yeah. that was the fad and it was, it was big money, it was big business, and clearly it was working for him. It said he was deputy editor, so he was well up there. Yeah, I, I at uh, first I was presuming he'd be some... You know, some admin temp, <laughs> but no. Um, so and and he was with Krang for like ten years or something at the point he wrote the book. So, oh, was he? Yeah, and I mean, I was half expecting it to be they came to the UK once, and you know, I got to meet them. But actually, he seems to spend a lot of time. They seem to like ship him out to New York and LA quite a bit. You know, um. I mean, if he's telling the truth, <laughs> to cover um, events and awards and to meet bands that are up and coming and stuff. So he seems to have been someone who was involved in the scene properly, I suppose. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff, especially in that second half, where you could tell that he was interviewing other bands and like just for their own kind of promotional purposes. And then he says like, hey, did you ever meet Slipknot? And then they say, yeah, we toured with them there or we met them in the studio or whatever. And he's like, give me your Slipknot anecdotes. So there's like tons of just like kind of colorless and, and dull anecdotes about Slipknot from other new metal bands, just because clearly he was meeting bands regularly for his job and knew he had this Slipknot book coming up. So he was just poaching and, you know, everything he could. Sure. Well, I wanted to talk about this for a couple of reasons because, um, number one, new metal. I'm, I'm, be- it's beginning to like, take on a weird place in my head as this kind of maligned time in music, and that hasn't had its comeback yet. I, I think the comeback is coming. It's probably inevitable, but it hasn't really happened yet, and I still feel like, you know, the way like '80s hair metal was like scorned for a long time, but now it's, it's kind of been welcomed back in a nostalgic kind of a way. New metal yeah. feels to me like still a time that like the music industry is collectively still just pretending like, oh, let's just pretend it never happened. And, you know, music fans, people who are serious into music or whatnot, who were big into this at the time, a lot of them, I think, would still be faintly embarrassed that they were into it. And it hasn't quite been welcomed back, you know, for a second, a second nostalgic wave yet. 
Yeah, well, I think once you have a band who sets up in a semi-ironic, you know, way to to pastiche new metal, and then they gain some success, kind of like Steel, Steel Panther, Panther for the yeah. new metal or the hair metal stuff. That's when you know we've hit the full cycle. The only these things go these things go in twenty year cycles, right? Yeah. So like new metal is really like I said, it's that nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. That's I know Corn and Limp Bizkit were out before that, but like they were kind of underground, and then but by ninety nine turn of the millennial, it was absolutely unavoidable. Like I remember as a as someone who was learning guitar at the time, I was devastated because nobody played Les Pauls or Strats anymore. And there was like new metal kind of band guitar solos, like as a response to the excess of you know yeah. the shredders. Yeah. So I like I wanted to like the current movement in metal, and I did my best to get into it, but like it just didn't give me what I wanted because well, I wanted. Well, shredders. you had Limp Bizkit albums, and like you bought this book, and you had you know. Oh yeah. You were... I, well, I. I, I loved Limp Bizkit, uh, and I bought, like, I remember I bought the Star, Hot Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water album, maybe not the day it came out, but definitely the week it came out, and I remember getting the number eight bus home from town, looking at the CD, and like, uh, you know, just thinking, oh, I can't wait to go home and listen to this, and there was a dude at the, I was sitting on the back of the bus, and there was a dude on the, the other side of the back of the bus who had just bought the CD too, and was looking through it, so it was like, <laughs> it, 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 it was, there was the something thing. in the air. Yeah, Limp Bizkit were gigantic, and I'd say Slipknot were probably even bigger, but the, even even still, though Slipknot were a bit more da- like seen as dangerous or something, whereas Limp Bizkit were just seen as a regular band, you know. Yeah, it, I think it's it's hard to f- remember how mainstream this stuff was, and and for me, like for something so aggressive and such um such heavy music to be so mainstream was something that hasn't really happened since. I would say. So I remember. I went to see Metallica in 2002 or 2003 or something, and Slipknot were playing with them. And I was worried. Like, I was scared of what a Slipknot concert would be, even by then. That was the, the big Dublin shows that happened a couple of years in a row. Yeah, Metallica came back to Dublin like every summer. I saw a them years. a year before, and they were with Linkin Park, and there was a huge, you know, outcry. I remember even hearing the the lineup and thinking like who the hell put those two guys on the same on the same lineup because you know to to an outsider you're like what what's the difference it's all heavy music the kids will like it but actually like Lim- or, um, Lincoln Park were seen as so kind of fake or so they seemed like everybody who was like considered themselves a music person at the time there was this core belief that they were manufactured the way boy bands were I've no yeah, idea there whether was, there was this there was this rumor that there was like I can't remember whether it was that they were a real metal band and then a boy band producer turned them into Linkin Park or else it was they were a boy band and a producer turned them into a new metal band or something. But there was a rumor anyway, yeah, that they weren't on the level that they were. They were. And uh, it must have come about because they, you know, they didn't swear. They didn't sing about like, you know, violence and, and disgusting things. And even though their music was heavy, there was always the, the sing-along radio-friendly chorus as well. And they had quite... Well, the really crazy and ironic thing was that, like, I remember there was a lot of jokes at the time as well about how Linkin Park had all these songs about, you know, uh, self-harm and, you know, feeling depressed and stuff, and that they were capitalizing on how other bands, especially like Korn, Korn. and stuff, uh, you know, had had turned that into, had new metal had been this very angsty and, you know, let's let's show our open wounds kind of stuff, and that Linkin Park were capitalizing that in a crass, you know, commercial, commercial way. deliberately commercial way, yeah. 
And then and then it bloody turned out that the guy really was suffering terribly and he yeah. ended up killing himself years later. It's so funny to well not funny but like it's you know darkly ironic to think that he, you know nobody well not nobody but certainly like you say the people in our circle who consider themselves quote unquote music people like thought like oh you can't like Linkin Park. Although I will say now I remember someone in school gave me a copied CD of the first Linkin Park album. Hybrid, hybrid there were a few tunes on there. That, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, hybrid theory. There were a few tunes on there that, I, you know, I had to be a little bit sneaky. But that was the perception, this. wasn't it? That they were, you couldn't like them. And even, you know, years later in the early 20 whatevers, they got bottled when they played with Metallica. And, um, you know, your man, Chester Bennington, came out and said, you know, we're, we're stoked to be here from Metallica. Everyone loves Metallica. He was trying to give them props and trying to, trying to humble themselves, I guess, which is... Which is stupid, and you shouldn't have to do that. But it wasn't enough; they just kept bottling them. Well, it Which... says in this Slipknot book that uh, Lars Ulrich laid down the law and told Slipknot they weren't allowed to do any shits or pisses on stage. I I have no problem believing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what's so funny is that, like, you know, they're they're like constantly saying like, "Oh, we're not going to change our show for anyone. We're going to do anything." And then they're like, you know, the guy just writes, you know, they had no problem changing their performance to match those other expectations you know. <laughs> but one of the things i do want to talk about is how he keeps he keeps comparing them to kiss and there's a horrible there's a horrible afterward by gene simmons which i'm sure you've it's just... terrible and you can you can absolutely bet i would bet every single thing i've ever owned that that was like gene simmons in a hallway and the guy said can you tell me few words about slipknot and then gene simmons like you know it's it's fairly clear he doesn't really know who they are or hasn't ever heard them and he's just kind of like, so they tell me there's this new band and people say they're like Kiss. Well, I don't really care. Here's me talking about Kiss. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the same thing he would have said about anything or anyone. Like, it's completely apropos to nothing. It's just like Gene Simmons truisms about everything, you know? <laughs> so what, where I was going with that was their own kind of identity and their sense of, of who they were and all that. Like... They they went into this with a very clever, crafted identity, kind of in the manner that Kiss did. I, I don't for a second think that they were as sort of, you know, capitalistic and as horrible as, as Kiss. But similar, you know, just as in the same way they deliberately had a, an image which was very clever and which was very successful. And, you know, I think that's part of the story here is, yeah, they're maniacs. And I mean, any if you imagine any of the heavier bands that we knew coming out you know playing music in school uh, especially the the really heavy metalers and the doom metalers and like if you'd given a bunch of those fellas when they were 18 or 19 a bunch of money and said this is great do more of it you know they'd have been as mad as slip you know young fellas are like that to some degree so when they're talking about all this crazy stuff in the book and how they behave there is to some degree young people can behave like that but for me the book is about you know who who makes it and who doesn't and it's got that obviously your man who's writing it is trying to get that classic rags to riches american dream thing but like a lot of the stuff so i underlined a lot of things in the book and i intended to uh, take pictures of them so i could refer to them but i I know there were too many i never got around to it but you'll probably have noticed like i was interested in a lot of the social or economic stuff i was interested in like where these guys came from um and what their sort of money situation was and what some of them had to sacrifice to, to get where they did? Uh, I think what the stuff that I found really, like, just in terms of, like, general themes that I extracted from it. So, like, I thought it was really, really funny how 
like the author has like he he didn't do like if you just think about this from a historical point of view like he is writing this with the end point very fully in his understanding in the sense so he's writing what what they would call teleologically right so there's actually a ton of stuff about destiny in it everything is destiny this <laughs> and fate at that so it's like he, he really kind of believes that like Slipknot were put on earth for a purpose and you know he really kind of gets across that like you know they had to come together in this way and that Des Moines was the only place where this could happen and yeah all that kind of stuff like so there's something you know, special about, about the banality of middle America that could only have produced this yeah it's funny so like even just simply little things like oh you know they wrote this song and they changed the name to this more familiar title at a later date. Instead of just saying, like, you know, later the title will be changed, it's like, ultimately destined to become the bands. The song we all know today, yeah. Yeah, He bumped into this guy at a concert, fated to become Slipknot's new guitar player. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everything is, like, really dramatic. And when when Joey Jordison's parents give him a drum kit, it's like, and he's, what, 10 years old or something? He he sat down. There was work to be done, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, so dramatic i there's for me there's a weird sense of it of like outsiderness because the guy is british and he sort of his take on des moines and like you know by extension sort of middle america is very interesting to me the way he he paints it as this place that it was is so terrible in its kind of boringness and its ordinariness that it had to produce something so violent and vile and um and destructive as like Slipknot want to be seen and you know with with new metal especially the the harder end of it at this time you have you know a time and a place that's we now look back and say actually you know in in the developed countries things were reasonably stable maybe even uncharacteristically stable and yet the the media that was being produced by these sort of bored teenagers was always like trying to push and trying to shock and trying to you know, in a way that I mean, I suppose every generation does to some degree, and every every new form of it is shocking. And he does, he does, he likes to draw threads between Alice Cooper and Ozzy Osbourne, and and then these guys and all of that. Well, that's one of the other hilarious kind of teleological things is that you know because it happened to be Des Moines, Iowa, where Ozzy Osbourne oh, the bat, the head yeah. off the bat. It's like that means that Slipknot were fated, destined to emerge and also do gross out crazy stuff. <laughs> while playing heavy metal 20 plus years later or whatever it's so stupid like you see as well like he, there's loads of really hilarious little uh just the writing style is you know it's one big long music magazine article like he hasn't adjusted his writing in any way shape or form and which is fine because like this was designed for i mean i probably read this when i was 13 it was designed for me and that's why I bought it. You know what I mean? There were so uh, many bits in it, though, that like I remember I've remembered since then that stuck out to me because either I even then as a teenager, I thought they were ridiculous. And I think I came back into it expecting to find like loads of bullshit and stuff that was obviously not real. And I, I thought I would be able to see that he was just like making stuff up or as you you're seeing it now, maybe they were just blowing smoke up his ass instead. I don't think they were necessarily blowing smoke up his ass in a cynical, uh, you know, manipulative way. I think they just, they were completely and totally committed to their gimmick, whether they even knew they were playing a gimmick or not. Like you're, you're, I think you're saying that they were very uh, calculated in how they put together their whole. Um, but I think it was genuine. Kind of I think, I think media it was persona, genuine. But yeah, I, I think it was quite genuine. I think it was probably fairly natural to them. 
I mean, I do think that it sounds like, I mean, the guy in the right in the book makes, makes it clear that the clown is pretty much the brains behind the marketing and all that. So it never came across to me like he did much musically. No. <laughs> like, I mean, like, they have what does he do? He bangs, the... he bangs like big beer kegs or something. Yeah, beer kegs and timpanies and toms. <laughs> Him and Dick Nose do that. But, like, they're never even that loud. You know, like, for a band with three drummers, they're not... I mean, I suppose they're fairly percussive. But other than that song that they did a few years after this one where you hear the, the clang of the beer keg, you know, timed with the guitar riff to stop, uh, as done once by Frag at the Half Moon Club with a Hurley. Yes. I don't know if you remember that. Fantastically well done. That was when Dead by Dawn blew my PVM. That was the the, the famous Dead by Dawn riot. So that that was from yeah. the Iowa album. Which, but when 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 this book ends, he's like frothing at the mouth at the mere thought of a second album. How could it possibly top the first one? And I, I, if I remember, the, the 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 name of the album hasn't come out yet, so they're still calling it Nine Men One Mission, which is would have been yeah, a crap title. That's, that's that's one of one of the names. It's another name that they have to it as well. Which I can't remember, but another one I, almost as stupid. Oh yeah, super ego. Click here to enter. <laughs> is the is the other possible one? And uh, yeah, he's foaming at the mouth at the idea. And uh, uh, Joey Jordanson says that um, even if people don't like it, they're going to have to respect it for being so insane. <laughs> it's full of stuff like that. Oh, you don't like it? Well, we're going to kill you. You know. <laughs> uh, and the clown says as well that. Uh, if you keep a baboon in a cage for 24 years, the beast has got some shit to work out when it's released. But that's going to be on the new album because they haven't been in the recording studio for a while. <laughs> I also love that. Um, so what, click here to what? Uh, so uh, I'll turn the page. It's, it's super ego. Click here to enter. That That's such a like 1999-ish sort of the internet is new. And it made me, it reminded me that um, for some reason <laughs> they had to have two websites one of which was like, yeah. do you remember what they're called? Like Slipknot.com. And then the other one, it's Evil Twin Sister, like Slipknot2.com. <laughs> no, it's Slipknot1 and Slipknot2, yeah. Evil, evil Sister site. Why, why does it need an Evil Sister site? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah, most of the stuff that stuck with me from being a kid was just them trying to talk, like playground banter, like trying to talk themselves up in, as being just crazy and insane. Um, well, what I what I what I really like is how, like, the insanity stuff is never sort of passed off as frivolous or indulgent or childish. No, like, it's the message. It's kind of thing. It's yeah. It's like it's it's a core part of what they do and how and and not just the message, but the delivery mechanism is really important and and like how you know they wouldn't be who they were unless they you know headbutted sixteen people in the crowd before playing. <laughs> now I I, I think there's one bit where like. <laughs> One of the guys, they're about to go on stage, and one of the guys is, like, so psyched about playing that he just starts jacking off in front of everyone. I think it was then, Mick, like, the, the guitar line, player. Yeah, Mick, the guitar player. Who also, there's a scene, there's a bit where, when they were recording, Ross Robinson bet him $300 that he couldn't find a skunk. <laughs> and give it a dead scream in its face. So he goes out, He it says, it makes note to say that he tucks his hair into his hat, Went out into the woods in his underpants to try and find the, squirt, the skunk, but then Ross Robinson says he didn't ha he didn't find it, so I didn't have to pay that motherfucker. <laughs> I really got the impression that either Ross Robinson or somebody in the studio was like punking them fairly often, as if like there's a bit where it says that they were all just being so insane and fighting and arguing in the studio, 
that Ross Robinson said, why don't you all go outside and draw like dead people autopsy chalk lines in the car park? And like they all thought this was awesome. So off they went. And I just feel like he just wanted to get them out of the studio for 20 minutes because they were driving him nuts. They said I couldn't tell if they were if the guy was being serious or not. And I, I didn't look it up, but they were kind of said like oh, that um, Ross Robinson is once you start talking to him or whatever, he's nothing like a calm 50 year old producer. But I couldn't tell if he actually was 50 or not. But like he comes across to me as though like I should say the, I can imagine an engineer would be totally sick of, you know, that kind of crap of like, a bunch of lads going nuts in a studio and would tell them to go outside and just like. Like, I remember when I'd get hyper as a kid, Dad would say, go out and run around the house three times or something, just get rid of this energy. But it sounds to me like Ross Robinson is, like, totally in there with that, with them for that, like, loving it. Well, do you believe all that stuff that he would have them do in the studio? Like, the the thing I remember from being a kid, obviously, was he'd get them all amped up and then throw flower pots at them and, and <laughs> stuff and like that. He'd scream at them and he he forced Joey Jordanson to play so many times that he had to have a guy who was there to like tape his fingers because his hands were bleeding and he got so hot and so into it that he had to do the recording naked. <laughs> and yet, I mean, I, maybe I'm being cynical for thinking that, you know, this kind of music is actually made by people who are just being like, oh, just another day on the job. And like, go back and listen to it. It's pretty intense. And you know, there is an emotional component there that you do have to get out of them. You have to be in the right frame of mind going in to do it. You can't just like come in and you're, you know, work, you know, oh, finished up my day job in the office, wearing my suit. Now I'm going to come in and record bloody spit it out. You know, I, I <laughs> you probably yeah, I do know. need, some, you some do need to get into the frame of mind. Intri- some of the guitar stuff is intricate though. Like you'd kind of want to, want to, want to be sitting down, you know, minding your P's and Q's to get that kind of, you know, precision right, you know, it's not, I, I, I can, um, I guess I don't know enough about playing drums for that style to, to be able to tell you whether or not like being off your fucking face psyched up would help or not. I get that there's a bit of an aggression that has to be there, but like, it's also like, they're very technical songs in a lot of ways. Yeah. I've, I've watched videos of their guitar player just sitting and doing the riffs and it's, yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Like it's, and he's not, but then I, I'm willing to believe that when they were young fellas, like a, a proportion of this was natural and real. And, and like the guy, Sid, is he the DJ? And he's like, you know, almost killing himself every night and climbing up onto the balconies and jumping off and stuff. And, yeah. and but like, they're still around, you know? So that book is full of this kind of crazy youth energy of like, we're going to go all the way or else we're going to explode. And the second we stop, you know, pushing ourselves to the edge where we're almost going to die, then we don't mean anything. And well, I know that I know the bass player died. Yeah, uh, I think he might have OD'd or something. I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, they say in the your man says in the book that Joey Jordanson and the bass player at that time were the heart of the band musically. Yeah, and that the clown, the clown was the uh, the kind of the, the mastermind of the image and the marketing and stuff. But I always thought like the two guitar players probably have a lot uh, a lot of credit. They get short shrift in, in the book way. comparatively, but then he's got he's got nine people to cover. So, I mean, he can only spend his yeah. time with... The f- so, like, really only three of them get fleshed out in the book. It's Corey Taylor, who's the singer. Joey Jordison is one of the drummers. And then the clown who does percussion stuff. Well, the way that the, the book is put together is, like, I'd say that Joey Jordison is kind of presented... Well, the clown as well. 
but Joey Jordanson is presented as like one of the really foundational, like not just he's gone now, but also like an, as an as an ideas man. Yeah, and I remember a couple of years ago when he when he ended up leaving, I couldn't believe it because I stopped following Slipknot with any, you know, uh, whatever with any serious mind a long time before. But like, but the the image of him as the absolute heart and soul of Slipknot was burned into my brain because of this book, probably. Book. So I, I, yeah, I was really surprised to find that he had gone. I thought that he was, you know, irreplaceable or whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, there's nine of them there. And in general, I would say that the two guitar players get very short shift. So like, shrift. So like Jim Root, who's the... Uh, the bigger guy. the one guy. who wears the kind of... The white mask with the kind of pointy chin and the red eyes. He's like... He's a he plays in Stone Sour with Corey Taylor as well, and he's a very popular guitar player. Like he's got all these Fender signature guitars that sell like hotcakes, and he does lots of clinics and videos and stuff. And you can see that like you know he's a very very good player, and a lot of those riffs are very technical and difficult. And they kind of just stick his, you know, him joining the band in as a quick little anecdote. They just say like, oh, he tried on one mask but didn't work, so he wore another one, and that's it. You know. I mean, maybe Funny. when when the guy was hanging out with them, he just didn't talk very much. You know. You just get the feeling he he spoke to the guys who were the loudest, kind of, or the most opinionated. Yeah, well, certainly, again, reading this book, I thought that the clown was, like, going to be front and centre. And then when you watch some of their videos, like, he's just, he's kind of running around the stage more than anything else. He's like Bez from Happy Mondays. He's not doing much. No, but, I mean, again, because I was kind of interested in the the social or, or economic side of things, a lot of them, a lot of them... He he seems to be like this hard working sort of blue collar guy. He's like a welder or something. And he's yeah, already he's married with kids when this starts. So I presume he's a little bit older than the other guys. And he like more yeah, he has three he, he he turns thirty uh during their first tour and he got a bit bummed out about it by Joy but Joy Jordanson told him that uh you know, Gene Simmons is just as good and he's over thirty. So then he, he chilled out. <laughs> But he like didn't he um like remortgage his house or something and then he he managed to make money in other ways along the side even though he wasn't like from money and he bought didn't he buy the club that they were playing in all the time to host other bands yeah, and stuff he did, yeah so I just I just thought yeah, that was interesting yeah. and like I I got the impression that Joey Jordison came from like at least a reasonably stable upbringing and his parents were able to buy him a drum kit for no reason and then Corey Taylor was like a he was all like on drugs when he was very young and probably maybe had a rougher time when he was younger. Yeah, it's funny that uh, <laughs> Joey Jordanson got the job in the garage and <laughs> he would work the night shift and just had, he had a tiny little boom box and he'd listen to Slayer and Air Drum all night. <laughs> was it was it Joey or Corey who like went back to his job in the porn shop after they got big because he wanted to keep it real? Yeah, that was Corey. <laughs> That, that's that's was, bullshit. The thing is, for, for for all the cr- the crediting of let's say the clown for being a welder and being a downturn and all that, he's also the guy who like brought dead cows' heads onto stage and had a uh, a, oh. a, a, a decaying crow in a jar that he would bring to shows and like walk into the crowd and show the dead crow to kids and then they'd all vomit all over each other. And he also said on multiple occasions that he likes to eat a lot four shows so that there's like a live threat that he might shit himself <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think he was probably also a very angry guy 
and a guy who like needed this kind of extreme way of expressing himself but like the fact uh, and the most extreme thing i i thought in the book was i can't remember one of them is always like cracking his skull off the side of the drums and then sid the dj is always like jumping off balconies and nearly killing himself and the fact is like they've been going for years they didn't explode they didn't drive themselves off the rail when they were that young so they've obviously come to some balance where they have that energy but also they're older and they have a bit more cop on now and they're able to keep going well, you know, I think they had. Uh, I think they were probably in deep trouble of burning themselves out, and then they took a long break in the mid two thousands, and they all did other bands. You know, uh, Stone Sour got back together. Joey Jordanson had a band called Murder Dolls, which was almost more like glam punk stuff. I'd say if they hadn't taken that break from each other, and the, the like, obviously they created this thing with Slipknot where there was the the necessity of craziness and violence and extremity and all that. And if they didn't do that, well, then they weren't giving you Slipknot anymore, so they needed to, like, step outside of that. That's when they stopped doing the whole, you know, we're going to protect our faces and all that. And, like, there's a bit in this where the clown says, like, as long as I'm in the band, you know, you'll never see my face or anyone else's face. I start, I started this thing, and if anyone else betrays the principles, you know, and you just, that's obviously not going to hold. <laughs> yeah. But he's he did I, as far as I know again I could be wrong he never did anything else musically. No, but I, the, a bunch of the others did. I think he probably was the money man and the ideas man. It's, it's I got the impression nobody else had any money to put into this. You know when they needed to front up some cash for like when they did their stupidly titled um, <laughs> demo recording. I think he paid Pete, for Pete most of it. Yeah, do you, do you remember the piece of artwork that, that was on the front? It, no. It was a naked picture of Joey, Joey Jordison in a cage and the cage was made by the clown oh. and it, it's a piece of artwork that's called Patiently Awaiting the Jigsaw Flesh. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that one down. Uh, I actually, I skipped, I must have skipped that, I missed that. Um, you know, it, one of the it says uh, that on that album they had songs about werewolves. Okay, one let, of which let's. Was, one of which was called Fur. <laughs> All right, so let let's talk about some of the like the crazy juvenile stuff that we remember from from years ago. So we better better talk about the werewolf. <laughs> so their original singer was called Anders, and he was into a. Uh, I'm trying to find it here in the book because I forget. Uh, a game, a role-playing game called Rage. I'd say it's probably one of these kind of Magic the Gathering or maybe Johnson's and Dragon style thing. And it was about werewolf lore. So they had their their um, producer on that original demo called Sean McMahon was a devout Christian. Apparently he was Catholic. And so he was having a little bit of a hard time justifying, you know, working with these lunatics who would do things like put Joey Jordanson naked in a cage and whatnot. <laughs> but he found that the the lyrics were his kind of like uh, his mechanism to justify it, that they were so fantastical all about uh, werewolves. And the, But the great line that we always remembered as kids when we read this was this guy, Sean McMahon, says, quote, Anders had a bit of a werewolf fetish. <laughs> so he says, so, I, so at least I was able to justify my involvement with the project by saying it was partly social commentary and partly fantasy. And he says, their newer material definitely draws the line, though. <laughs> Now, I think I misremembered this or misinterpreted it because 
like the word fetish, like it, it can mean a sexual thing, but it doesn't have to. So I think when I was younger, I interpreted this as being unambiguously a sexual thing. And I, I always I believed for years that this guy was kicked out of the bands because he kept writing lyrics about like werewolf sex. And that was not, <laughs> that was too much for them. But every... I, 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 I had the same association and I like 100 percent pictured like werewolf furry kind of stuff. <laughs> You know, where the people dress up in animal suits. So rereading like, it now, like, I don't think he's using the word fetish in that way, but it is it is open to interpretation. Yeah, well, I know that, like, Karl Marx talked about commodity fetishism, so, like, the fetishization of material goods. Uh, but I don't know if, like, I, I couldn't tell you where and when, like, from an etymological perspective, that fetish got a sexual connotation. Like, it could be Freud, or it could be way before that of Marquis de Sade, or I have no clue. But, like, certainly today, and 20 years ago when this book was written, if you say fetish, you're talking about sex stuff. But, like, it also wouldn't be unusual for people in the Slipknot milieu to just, like, throw out fetish in a kind of, a, you know, ironic... I, I think he like uses that. the word elsewhere in the book when he says that... The clown has like a dead crow fetish or something. And yeah, yeah, he does. So, yeah. he, I mean, he might intend it that way. He might not. I think we need to talk about the, the Wolverhampton Town Council as well, because that was a legendary in-joke for us for years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's towards the back. Hang on, I'll try and get the quote. Uh, also, there's a there's a great chapter called Slipknot versus Limp Biscuit. That was a good one. <laughs> There's also a, a chapter heading called Enter Dick Nose, which Enter I Dick Nose, yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> enjoyed very much. Uh, I, I was texting Matt about it a few days, and he said, "What was that guy called? Cock Nose?" And I was like, "Oh, please, come on." He's the guy. Uh, if you if you're only passingly familiar with Slipknot, he's the guy who wears a rubber mask with a long rubber nose, and he rubs it when he plays. Uh, is he is he a DJ as well? I, no, he was the other drummer. Um, I don't know this 100% for sure, but I, I am reliably informed that he's also out of the band these days. Right, less controversially okay, than... Okay, so here's the, here's the full... Here. So this is from the excellent chapter, Anarchy in the UK, <laughs> part two. Uh, so Slipknot also met with opposition from a councillor in Wolverhampton. On hearing that the band were due to play the council-owned Civic Hall on, first, on the 1st of March, councillor Joan Stevenson went on the warpath Stating that Slipknot were, quote, not welcome at all, she further branded them, quote, ridiculous, juvenile, and stupid. <laughs> I'm sure Jim Morrison, the, the doors wouldn't do what they do, she bristled. I know I'm old and a fuddy-duddy, but I don't think that some of this band's actions are quite the thing we want at our civic hall. As a representative of some of the people of Wolverhampton, I can say that they would not find this band acceptable at all. I'm quite broad-minded, but one has to speak as one finds. So did Joey. <laughs> Speaking out in Krang, he joked... I'm going to shit in a box and send it to Wolverhampton Council. We'll see how acceptable they find that. <laughs> Classic. The only thing uh, that here's another fucking. The only thing that disappointed me rereading another... it years later was the word joke, because like I would way prefer if he meant it like yeah, of course I'm going to do this. One hundred percent. There's another gem on this page as well where it says Nottingham Councillor Leon Unzer. Quote, if they do wish to urinate on themselves, I must admit, it intrigues me. If people are going to enjoy the show and no one's hurt, I don't see a problem. I'm more worried about racism, sexism, and homophobia. 
So fair on fair fair play to Leon Unser. I wonder yeah. if he's still uh, gainfully employed Very with the public's purse. Broad-minded gentleman. Yeah. Well, I I think it would be better if he said uh, if they want to urinate in themselves. That's their business, rather than I must admit it intrigues me. But so be it. Maybe he's got a piss fetish. <laughs> Of course, we don't judge in our liberal times. No. So, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah. There's so there's a lot of funny stuff. So this again, like like what I really love is the fact that they, the well, the author really tries to present it as though like everything they do is meaningful, uh, rather than just like frivolous or. Oh, like the, the clown when he's a, a teenager. Bit dumb, a bit of dumb excess. The town. The but clown no, finds like, his mask in a in a department store. As a teenager, oh, and yeah, he, he doesn't even like he doesn't pick it up. But then later on, he's like, oh, "Actually, no, I do want that." And he comes back and picks it up, and that was fate. Yeah, little, yeah, little did I know that this mask was destined to form a pivotal part of his identity. All this kind of stuff, um, and it's like when he talks about them pissing and shitting on stage, like it's just put so unironically with no commentary context. Like this is a bit where he's like, "Oh, and they went on the Howard Stern show, and one of them." took it, jacked off in the corner while the other crapped in a bucket like end of paragraph end of chapter that's it <laughs> and a bunch of the other stuff where he's like uh oh he he you know when they first i think it's sid the dj they first meet sid and they're like they know that he's got great skills and they know that they want to incorporate this techno and hip-hop sounds but they weren't so sure about him but then he headbutted the clown they're like oh brilliant he's into headbutts so then Sid and Clown become the headbutt masters and they're giving each other concussions left, right and centre. And uh, the author's like, you know, this would add to the head trauma that Sean was already giving himself regularly by headbutting his drums on stage. End of chapter. <laughs> done. I mean, there's always been a bit of that in rock and roll, though, like this celebration of the self-destructive. But you know what's funny about it is that, so like, new metal was seen as this kind of like, like at the time, and this guy's obviously on the bandwagon. Like, it's a bit of a correction to some of the stupidity and excesses, you know, funnily enough, excesses of the old way of metal. So, like, 70s, 80s metal is old hat. Grunge, grunge's time has passed, but, like, grunge was so iconoclastic and cool that, you know, we're not going to shit on that. But we are going to shit on the 80s and 70s. So, like, he even says, like, he goes to great pains to show how three-dimensional slip not our and you get to see the quote widescreen you know images of their life um whereas 70s and 80s hard rock and metalers would just they wanted to just like you know tie babes to racks and lick their guitar necks slipknot on the other hand are more introspective and are willing to show you their emotions and then he's like also they headbutt their drums and bleed out of their eye sockets into their masks and nearly pass out because they're and, and also they, they everywhere. engage in high theater directly inspired by alice cooper you know you can't you can't have it both ways like yeah they're like uh they're like, oh, we want to be the, uh, we want to put on a Kiss level um, stage show, and ki and then Gene Simmons is quoted like approvingly saying that Metallica lost the respect of the hardcore fans when they put like a big statue on stage that then would explode at the end of the concert. But like, you know, he's like, for every hardcore fan, it was replaced by three new paying customers or whatever. Like, it's like, yeah, that's the ethos of seventies and eighties rock, which is fine, you know. But it's really just amusing to me that they he kind of says like all this excess. Is necessary and inevitable, and it's part of their destiny. But at the same time, he's like, "But this is nothing like, you know, Led Zeppelin sticking a swordfish into a groupie, or <laughs> you know, that other kind of stupid excess." Yeah, like this is somehow authentic. 
whereas yeah, that was like, false. So the closest he comes, the closest he comes to saying anything approaching criticism, uh, or even critical, like in terms not just critical, critical in terms of criticism, but just critical in terms of like you know trying to analyze. Is that there's there's a bit where they're talking about how they start to piss on each other on stage, and how they were creating riots and stuff, and uh, it says that the pissing became a big thing and they're all doing it and he says uh cory gets up on the drum riser he sticks his dick out in front of everyone in the crowd and he takes a piss on the drummers the other two drummers and the piss flies up in their face and then so he says such child this is the altar such childish antics would lead detractors to dismiss slipknot as little more than than a performing circus if you already believe those nine men in masks to be a touch ludicrous, then their on-stage water sports only serve to banish their credibility altogether. So it's like, that's very true. And then he says, me? I thought it was fun. Rock and roll is supposed to be primal and unlock the inner child. Urinating on each other might not have been the best way to emphasize the seriousness of Corey's lyrics, but if the alternative was Stipnot standing motionless like some grunge messiahs, then give me the yellow stuff any day. Because there's only two options, right? You could do Exactly. <laughs> and also, if you look at the footage of all the grunge messiahs, they stood around stoically. Uh, no. <laughs> that's like that's the only thing I came across in the book where he's like, there's any degree of levity of like, hang on, you know, maybe headbutting drums is stupid, or maybe taking a crap in the corner of a radio show is stupid. Instead, he's just like, ah, no, yeah. it has to be done. Otherwise, they can't, you know, exercise the demons of their tortured souls. But this, this is such a hot take, heat of the moment thing, aimed squarely and only at people who are already like them, and you know, I mean, he's he's given them what they want, I suppose. Yeah, and like I said, I actually think that he probably, like, when he's talking about their album and he's like oh, i'm not going to do a track by track review but suffice to say it's absolutely phenomenal and it's the game changing debut album of all time and he's reviewing some of their shows when they come to the uk and he's like oh their opening track was you know nail bitingly incredible and it only got better from there he's I, he laps them up but he's also totally selling to the converted like this is a book for kids who can't get enough slipknot you know like and again i'll throw myself under the bus here they talk about like how the album had only been out for a couple of months and they released a video, a 20-minute long video called Welcome to Our Neighborhood that, like, sold more than any other rock music VHS that year. And uh, I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I saw the videos for uh, Spit It Out and um, Eyeless. Did you have... Wait, wait, wait and Bleed. You know, remember, I think it was Spit It Out at The Shining. Yeah, I remember that. I video. thought you had a... I thought you got a copy of the single off somebody and it had a video on it. Am I misremembering? Was it was it that VHS? Because I, I had the VHS, yeah. I, I got the VHS for like five ninety nine in Five Scribes. I do remember the 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 video with The Shining. Yeah, and they had like live footage from them playing Ozfest and all the lads moshing doing the yeah crowd crowd surfing and there's a bit where Cory uh, Taylor makes everyone sit down, uh, and then they all jump up. They no a correction. They jump the fuck up. <laughs> yes, jump the fuck up. That is the refrain. Which is near, I, I, nearly as good as the Christmas drink bit, which I, I do enjoy in the book. I I definitely had, when I got um, that Limp Bizkit album, I think it was like a couple of extra pounds to get the deluxe edition, which had a second CD with a CD-ROM of all the music videos up to that point. But I don't remember getting any Slipknot videos on the computer, but 
could have been possible. Like that was definitely the time where, like I had uh, I had the CD single for No Leaf Clover yeah. from S and M by Metallica, and that had a little documentary about the S and M album and the video for No Leaf Clover, which I watched millions of times on the computer. Yeah, that was the time when that was you know most singles had videos on them for the first time. Yeah. Oh man, that was a <laughs> that was a glorious time. I love that multimedia stuff. <laughs> Um, or coming to the, uh, do you have other points that you want to mention about the book? Um, yeah, I think probably it's worth talking about Ross Robinson a bit more. Oh yeah, he's, the, the, he's really the, the the prophet of new metal. I, I was thinking, like, how would you explain him to somebody now who who doesn't remember or didn't know? He was like the main guy, the main producer, kind of behind new metal as a movement. Uh, from the from the engineering studio point of view, which is a bit like saying he was absolutely huge for an incredibly short amount of time. Yeah, like he he got in on the ground floor because he pr- produced Korn's uh, debut album, which I think is like ninety four or something. That's right. Yes. So yeah, most so most like people he, consider that to be like the proper beginnings of what's now called new metal. Yeah, one hundred percent, and um, like. Again, there was probably not insubstantial underground movement, but like certainly for us in Ireland, like corn didn't make a splash until a good while later. Yeah, uh, and and what's funny as well, like when I listen to corn, sometimes oh, I try not to, but if I hear some corn, <laughs> it doesn't sound like quintessentially new metal to me. You know, like I think the bands that came afterwards are more sort of more typically new metal you know but Ross Robinson was there and he did like actually a ton of stuff like he did Limp Bizkit as well um and you could tell like you know he had an ear to the ground like he was really catching these bands as they were on the up and making sure to be involved and did you notice the, or did you see the bit in the book where he's like oh you know Slipknot were ready to work with him but he was already committed to doing Vanilla Ice's new metal album. And he's like, I just did that to fuck with everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I remember word coming out like, oh, did you hear Vanilla Ice is going to do a rap rock album? (laughs) He now has a successful business flipping houses and a TV show about it. Very good. Yeah. So there you go. But yeah, he's, he's the messiah of new metal and... His, uh, he, he's all in on the spiritual side of things. He's obsessed with the his mother, apparently, as some sort of uh, probably, you know, charlatan who's just an evangel- evangelist. And she he talks about how she went over to Germany with a translator. And even though she was speaking tran- through translation, she made the whole room cry. Oh. And, he's like, Although, and then he says, like, I don't believe in her stuff, but I believe in the spiritual power. I enjoyed uh, the the lads from Slipknot trying to like justify that as well as in, you know, we're, you know, we're so destructive and horrible and we hate society and, and obviously religion is bullshit. But, you know, Ross Robinson took us to this spiritual retreat and, you know, it wasn't my kind of thing, but, you know, I could see it was pretty cool. <laughs> There's a really funny, like, uh, kind of two-handed thing going on as well, where like, they're like, Ross Robinson is the prophet of chaos and he was the one who was really encouraging them to get so loose and so crazy and... There's like a, a vague anecdote in the in the book about how the time he pushed one of them too far, and and he's throwing pots at them and he's screaming in their faces and he forces Corey Taylor to like explain his lyrics to the whole band. They have a big communal cry, but then there's also 
on the other hand, this thing where he's like, ah, oh, military precision, and he had to be so careful to like channel their energies when it would count most, and they had never seen such discipline before, and the clown is like saying, you know, we're the most disciplined motherfuckers you're ever going to see in the world, and we don't take any drugs whatsoever, I'm just... And he, I'm so clean living, I get so fucking psyched about just playing music, I'm high on music, and he's like, my dick gets so hard about having a wife and three kids and a trailer, it just makes me so happy. But then they're also like, I headbutt my drums, and I give myself concussions, and I piss on stage. <laughs> like, they're celebrating chaos, and Ross Robinson is the the architect of all the chaos, but it's like, oh, so he's the most disciplined person ever, and they get so high on life, even though they're, and then they talk about, like, getting so drunk with Kerry King for an entire tour. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought the drug stuff was maybe a little bit tidied up for for the intended audience, perhaps. Yeah, I didn't actually think of that, but you're probably right. They did. T- they do t- talk about boozing a fair bit. Yeah, it's more like they they imply that um, Corey Taylor and at least had drug problems when he was younger, but then like when they were on the mission, you know, nobody touched anything. And then there's a bit like they get some release after they release an album or after they do a tour and yeah they spend a couple of days with the bat with the their heroes you know but it, it it's framed as if you know those were kind of one-off kind of crazy nights you know crazy and nights it, by kiss yeah that's exactly what i meant yeah crazy crazy <laughs> crazy, nights crazy nights. Single. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah it's a it's a it's a hilarious book it's a complete and total time capsule like it's written maybe not at the crest of the wave of new metal but like pretty pretty much approaching that because i'd say like the the i think probably new metal hadn't taken over everything yet but let's say by the next year 2001 2002 maybe it completely had like to me that probably the apex of new metal is metallica saint anger just because when you have the the default heavyweight champion of all hard heavy hard rock heavy music you know forced or seemingly to um, acquiesce to the fashion of the day and make like just the worst album ever, because <laughs> because because like they are not suited to this genre in any way, shape, or form. So like when you watch some kind of monster, the documentary about the making of Saint Anger, like that's just the ultimate time capsule of new metal. But this book is a really good time machine to get back into the headspace of how old hat all the old metal seemed and all yeah. the old hard rock and how this was so cutting edge um, but, but again the, it's funny that the guy is kind of saying that like the whole rap rock hybrid was tired and that Slipknot gave it not just a new coat of paint but they brought you know everything else in they brought the techno in they brought the the harder drumming the faster songs all this kind of stuff so it's like it's really saying you know it's actually he tries to say Slipknot are like beyond new metal which ended up being true. I, th- know, I, I consider them like, yeah, I consider them sort of like breakout characters from a malign genre. You know, they're, I mean, they're not mainstream well, anymore, they not, but they, they're, like, they're, sti- they're still Everyone going and they still completely dead. Yeah. Yeah. For something that completely fell off a cliff incredibly quickly and whose, whose comeback hasn't happened yet and who are still kind of like persona non grata. Slipknot are still chugging away and have a certain amount of respect and people know who they are and going back and listening yeah, to it yeah, they're a lot they? they're a lot easier to come back to than Limp Bizkit Limp Bizkit is such a time and a place you know and, and, and it's like Limp like new metal was absolutely everywhere and you say it peaked in about 2001 maybe by 2003 Limp Bizkit were getting booed off stage 
just from being Limp Biscuit. Like it was just seen as oh, yeah. it got old so fast. And I think it got old in a in a off a cliff moment, like much faster than, you know, these, you say these cycles come and go and that's true. But like it was instant, wasn't it? And it, it, it was it didn't just become like something unfashionable. It became don't mention it. It never happened, you know? Yeah, it became the lamest thing in the world. And like, and that was from a very high point. Like Fred Durst was the coolest person ever to a lot of us at that time. And our friend Fred got like a New York Yankees baseball cap, and, which were not easy to come by in Ireland at that time. And it was like, oh my God, you got the Fred Durst hat. You know, it was <laughs> and like, do you remember when they brought out the song for Mission Impossible 2? That was just... Yeah, it was off the off the chank. Like we couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, and uh, not that long later, like you said, yeah, they were like Fred Durst was the biggest joke you could imagine. You know, like he was so lame. They don't. They they stopped playing in America, like in about two thousand and four, and they they still tour like around the world, but they don't they don't play in the US because Are they on the kind of uh, Steven Seagal circuit of Eastern Europe. They're on some kind of blacklist. They just they just get laughed at. <laughs> I'll be honest, like, I have Limp Bizkit on my kind of gym playlist, and I definitely enjoy them, but I enjoy them, like, full tongue in cheek, and I'm laughing at, not with them. I also, I'm, also la- I'm also laughing at myself. <laughs> I also think it requires a deliberate attempt to go back and kind of re- recapture them, because I think until you do that deliberately, they just don't come into your head. You you don't just, you know, casually put them in with a playlist of other things, because oh, yeah. they, they don't... They haven't joined the, the pantheon of acceptable, you know, classics from the past. They're still in this sort of black zone that shouldn't be touched until you go there deliberately and, and lift up the, you know, like lift up those covers and look underneath and say, oh, yeah, that's not so bad, you know. <laughs> yeah, you 100% have to be in the mood for like, I, I'm ready for some ironic <laughs> enjoyment of who I used to be and all oh, the follies of youth. You know, like you can't just even like a cheesy mutton. The crew song, you can stick it on while you're doing the dishes and, and bang your head a little bit. Yeah. It's like Limp, Limp Biscuit just can't. They're so obnoxious <laughs> and so stupid. I would say, like, Slipknot are very heavy, so they're like, you know, they're. I'm not saying they'd be good dishwashing music, but they're not as, as. Maybe something like People Equals Shit, which is very stupid. But, like, certainly they're kind of post 2003, like the. I think it's called the Subliminal Verses, that third album. They yeah. kind of quote, quote unquote grew up a lot. Well, actually, go back and listen to that now, and there's a lot of um, it's very much of that sort of post grunge era. So now that that's old Is enough that, okay? that you can you can kind of hear it in context. But yeah, I mean, it's it's still good. I remember when that album came out, thinking like, "Whoa, I didn't know Slipknot had this level of uh, complexity and you know thoughtfulness to them." I thought that they were just like a bunch of lads, you know, going crazy. Uh, the know, one they thing slowed, I... they slowed down and all that kind of stuff. I will say that one aspect of a, you know a nostalgic view on this that i did come across was back in 2016 there was um just a one-off gig in cork with a band made up of people from other local bands and they did one night of nostalgia new metal covers and they called themselves guilty pleasure which i think tells you what you need to know about how, how it's going to be viewed yeah i remember back in ucc there was a band that that played at rag week or something and uh it was uh, they did like 80s covers and they did Jump by Van Halen the guy like shredded out the solo and everything and it was kind of the same thing it was like you know we're not allowed to admit that this would have been 2005 2006 but we're 
not allowed to admit that this 80s rock stuff is just fantastic and that it's got total universal appeal. So I'm going to do this like a complete joke. I mean, the guy was topless wearing a cape while he shredded Van Halen, which is like, you know, some of the hardest rock guitar playing you could do. And everyone is like loving it, but they're all going, ho, 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 isn't this, you know, this has been presented as a joke. This has been presented as a guilty pleasure, so it's okay. Because it had to be at first. I think even now, yeah, I think now, like, well, 80s you, rock is you, very, very, very you couldn't go to You couldn't have an ordinary pub playlist anywhere in the, in the in the Western world without, like, a bit of Journey and a bit of, you know, Van Halen. And it's just completely now, standard. Now, but yeah. But, like, that's, but I think, like, let's say, remember the, the Journey song was in the final scene in Sopranos. I think Journey had been out in the cold for a good while before that. And since then, I think at least everyone in our generation, and probably even, you know, kind of students that I teach, 17, 18, 19, 20, they'll probably even be like, oh yeah, Journey, brilliant, love that stuff. I mean, and they'll listen to this fucking terrible snap hip-hop as well and all that. <laughs> but like, you know, Journey were seen as alto, mega lame up until relatively recently. And like the kind of, all that 80s hard rock is very much, you know, everyone enjoys it now, you know? But um, it, it has to like, it needs... I it, think... It needs either time, but also it needs a specific event, like being in The Sopranos, for it to kind of settle into the acceptable, you know, pantheon of, of kind of wall, wallpaper music almost. I, I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean you can, you can hear it while you're washing the dishes without it disrupting you, whereas Limp Bizkit at the moment <laughs> will always be disruptive unless you're in, yeah, the, well, in, the, in the place for it. Yeah, in the same way that, let's say, you could, you know, Netflix can make a movie about Motley Crue and... Housewives will watch it and think, oh, 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 weren't they a bunch of naughty lads? Nobody's ever going to make a movie about Wasp. <laughs> and Wasp is never going to be played at the pub while people have, you know, two or three pints after work and then go home. Yeah, it's only and a few a few tracks that manage to make it from yeah. every generation. Yeah, so it's like, I think it's Dyer's Eve, uh, the Metallica song on Justice for All has like 34 riffs on it. You know, you'll hear a lot of Metallica in public. You'll never hear Dyer's Eve. Or no. <laughs> to live is to, or it might be To Live Is To Die. Is, but one of those tracks anyway has like bazillions of riffs and the song just goes nowhere. I mean, it's completely class. Don't get me wrong. But you but, won't hear Saint Anger either. <laughs> well, God, I mean, that's a mercy. I, I, You know what's funny is like when Saint Anger came out, like uh, I remember trying so hard, hard to like it. I Like I knew it sucked, but it's just like, oh, I have to get on the train. You know, like. I've never heard it described as way, like, I felt new metal huge, before. I felt a huge... Oh, well, I, well I, I'm not saying it is new metal, but it's like Metallica trying to adjust to a world where yeah. new metal is... I've, I've never heard that interpretation of it. That's very interesting. It, it... Um, <laughs> even Slipknot were too heavy for my tastes at the time. You know, like I preferred... Like I, that's the time when I was listening to 80s cheese rock. But like I felt personally as a devotee of Kiss that like these are the inheritors... Uh, uh, to, to kiss his kind of like position as the, the kings of masked rock or whatever. So I have to like them. Well, you know, maybe you know, like, I, just as kiss kind of, you know, their, their star went down and then they had, they also had their, their one moment that brought them back with the MTV unplugs, you know, maybe yeah. Slipknot or, or new metal in general just needs some cultural milestone to come. Someone needs to make like a stranger things type situation that, oh, totally. that it, it takes place in 1999 and has my plague on the soundtrack and they'll be, they'll be back in. There's there's 100% a market for that. You know what's funny as well is I, I just read this book called uh, The Topeka School. It's a novel by a guy called Ben Lerner. It's kind of, you know, one of the big, uh, highly touted literary kind of books of the last year. And uh, a 
a lot of it takes place in the 90s and yeah, it's kind of a book about a lot of the theme the macro theme is about like, like language and stuff but a lot of it is about the kind of masculinity of mid to late 90s america that then laid the foundation for the kind of trump phenomenon and all that and there's a there's a lot of it about like the the main character who's a very self-consciously intellectual kid having to bend himself towards the climate of new metal machismo and so there's there's lots of scenes of him you know suffering listening to to metal that he hates and doing rap battles and so he hates the music but he can do rap battles because he's a debater and he's very good at like thinking on his feet and even using language to just like mystify and create like complete gibberish that people can't uh refute even though it doesn't actually make any sense and they're kind of using this as as the the, the authors talk about how this is what became of the political discourse and political debate. But it's really funny because the, the, the guy's like, you know, he wants to be a poet. He's got the poet's soul, but he's forced <laughs> to do rap battles <laughs> in basements while guys are chugging cans, you know. Eight mile kind of stuff. Well, way earlier than that. Like, oh. yeah, because it's set in Topeka, Kansas. And like the guy is like talking about how these are, these are, um, you know, suburban white kids who, you know, barely spent a day in the presence of a black guy and yet they're you know they're talking about you know fuck the cops and nwa <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very good so i think there's a there's a definitely you know the the, the new metal gen generation has matured and has embarked upon the the terrible process of reflection <laughs> well new, new metal had within it like on the one hand you had the sort of corn side of it which was like all about your feelings and your, you know expressing your your own personal problems but then it had like the Limp Bizkit, like idiot frat boy, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You oh, know? yeah. I did it all for the nookie. <laughs> <laughs> like, I did it all for the nookie. Come on, the nookie. Come on. So you can take this cookie and stick it up your ass. Stick it up your ass. It's, it's awful. <laughs> so I, I think you're right that there's the, that, that movie is going to is going to be made and. Oh, it won't. It, it, it won't. It won't be a film. It'll be a streaming series. Yes, uh, but the soundtrack will do well. Yeah, yeah. Hope. And then you, and then you'll see the dreaded. Once uh, they do things like concerts again, you'll see the dreaded package tour, just like they did in <laughs> in the nineties. Like they had those tours, like the Ozfest and the Family Values and Lollapalooza and all that. It'll be a complete. Uh, oh. And then you'll see a. All the, the dads with the, the paunches in the midsection with the backwards caps on again. And, well, you know, I'm, I'm really waiting because, again, I, I, I teach students 17 to 20. I'm waiting for the day where someone comes in with the baggy pants and the skater shoes. Yeah, and yeah, go, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. The, the, yeah, it's when they're on stage with the dancing girls, but the dancing girls have like baggy, baggy pants and then like little strings, spaghetti top, tops and a baseball cap. It's on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would say that in general, the, the fashion that the kind of like uh, fashion conscious kids in, in the colleges here are wearing is kind of set at 96, 97 at the moment. Wow. You know, the way these cycles work, That's I'm seeing a lot of that kind of style, like the Tommy Hilfiger catching up. jumpers and coats are back in. So it's not, I'd say we're, we're approaching the baggy pants terror. Well, with, dangerously soon with, with that happy destination in mind uh, we'll wrap things up thanks for talking Donald you're very welcome you've been listening to another baggy pants wearing down tuned guitar playing episode of White Atlantic Weird I'm Kean. 
Uh, my thanks to my brother Donald for coming on once again for this episode. It's a little different from what we usually do, but hopefully you found it entertaining. Um, like I said at the at the top, when times are tough, and we're all going through some tough times at the moment, I'd imagine, we sometimes like to go for something a little bit lighter, something a little bit sillier. If you have any ideas for future episodes, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I'll tell you in a moment uh, some ways you can do it. Also, if you yourself have fond memories or <laughs> not fond memories of your new metal days and you'd like to let us know about them, uh, please do get in touch with us about that as well. Now, or if you've seen any evidence of the sort of new metal revival that we were talking about, hey, we'd love to know all about it. Please do get in touch. So... How do you do that? You can do it several ways. We're uh, on Facebook. I'll put the link down below. We're White Atlantic Weird. We're at Strange Ireland on Twitter. And we're White Atlantic Weird Podcast over on Instagram as well. We don't use any of them too much, but if you want to get in touch with us, you know, just plaster it out there and we'll probably, you'll, you'll probably be getting in touch with us one way or another. Oh, as usual, the absolute best things you can do to help us out is to spread episodes to other people who might like them. So if you had friends who were the sort of uh, wallets on chains, baggy pants wearing types, and you think they might get a laugh out of this episode, please, please, please send it on to them directly or by posting and copying on social media or whatnot. We don't really mind. It all helps. So please do us a little favor and send it out to somebody who you think might enjoy it. Once again, thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You can prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.